and welcome to episode 63 of Random Encounter, the RPG Fan Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Steinman, Pale Robbie on the boards. Joining me today is Editor-in-Chief of the World. Oh, the world now. That, that's nice. Uh, this is John McCarroll. I am uh, Editor-in-Chief of the World, apparently. Yes, I, I just thought you needed an, an upgrade because of our topic that we're going to get to here in a minute. See what I did there? Huh? Huh? Connections? Yeah? What? Nope. I don't know. Steven? Yes? Please introduce yourself. Uh, Steven Myrie, Taylor's on the boards. I do music stuff and reviews. Late. And then we have the Derek. The Derek. Derek Hamburger. The cheeseburger of the boards. So, uh, we decided to do something. <laughs> what? I'm so, you just like, never mind. I just let it go. I just, I was just like, like let's, nope. let's just keep pushing. Whatever. Forward. Okay. All right. Fine. Moving forward. Um, so we decided to do something a little different this week. Uh, we kind of all were like, Hey, you know, maybe take a little bit of, of a break from talking about games that have been released right now. Why don't we talk about a topic? And John had a, an excellent topic that he suggested on the boards. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that today. Then, of course, we have news to talk about, including, yes, we will talk about the Xbox One. A lot of RPGs on that system, right, guys? The X-Bone, as the Internet's calling it. Is that really yep. what we're calling that thing? I wish they weren't. They should just call it the X-One. X-Bone. Just... Where did the, the X-Bone come from? I, I heard it on Giant Twitter. Podcast, but why? Like... XB1X-Bone. Oh. Oh, that's cute. That's cute. Well, I think they want... I, I think the reason why... Ding, 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 ding. No, 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 no. I think the reason why they're calling it that is so that you'll call it the one, the way that we always say the 360. They want to say the one, obviously, because, you know, the best... Whoa. Because the big... Yeah, exactly. The biggest movie of, like, you know, 1998 was The Matrix, so... Real, real timely there, guys. So yeah, we'll talk about the uh, the Xbox One a little bit, some more uh, gaming news, and then we kind of have a treat for you guys. Another uh, developer interview. Somebody want to mention that since I didn't want to be a part of it and get anything spoiled for me. We don't talk to any developers. We talk to editors of a, at a publisher. Okay, that's fair. No, uh, we uh, we have an interview with uh, Ben and Karen from Axis Games, both of whom are developers. Are <laughs> ha 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 ha. Gotcha. Uh, edit- editors. Yeah. Thanks, Rob. Rob uh, has corrupted you. Both of whom are editors on many of their visual novel projects. Uh, we talk a little bit about uh, Hakuoki, uh, VLR, and Sweet Fuse. Excellent, excellent. Sweet we, Fuse. We put that at the end of the podcast so you guys don't have to worry too much about spoilers. If you don't want to take part in that, then go ahead and just uh, turn it off at that point. Yeah, we, we don't really get super spoilery. Um, so if you haven't played VLR, you might want to skip the little VLR section. But uh, with Sweet Fuse and Hakuoki, we don't go into spoilers at all. Cool, 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 cool. All right, John, uh, seems like you're running things today. So uh, what kind of topic did you want to talk about? What did you suggest to us? Cheetos. Flaming Hot, hot or Original? Dangerously cheesy. Cream cheese or no cream cheese? <laughs> no, ooh, ew, I hate cream cheese. Wait, 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 they make cream cheese Cheetos? <laughs> no, no, that's what that's what all the, the kids in middle school did. They'd get Flaming Hot Cheetos and dip oh, them in yeah. cream cheese. Oh, I, I used to see that. I, I like what? how they... Do you guys remember the game with Chester Cheetah? Yeah, that was yes. a cool game. That what about a... Cool Spot? Oh, Cool Spot, cool spot was, was way cooler. That was but not RPGs. Game. Like Chester Cheetah, I like how they turned him from <laughs> you like play the... a role. <laughs> play I like how... as a red spot. Wait, 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 wait. wait. No, Chester Cheetah went from being like this really obnoxious character. Like now, the new commercials with him are like kind of subversive and like cool in a stonery, like leaving Las Vegas type way. Like it's it's kind of weird. Like. 
I don't know. I, I never would have thought Chester. I want the Noid to come back. If we got Chester Cheetah back, I want the Noid. Oh my God. Dude, the I Noid used to, gave me nightmares. I used to play the Noid game for NES <laughs> all the time. Me too. They had, a, the uh, they had an arcade cabinet for it at the uh, at like a local diner, like a little Anthony's diner. I'd play it all the time, and it freaked me out. All the but kids. All the kids listening to the podcast right now are like, what are these old guys talking about right now? How do you know the Noid, Derek? What? Like, you were, like, born in 1990, for God's sake. I'm 25. <laughs> so when were you born? 87. <laughs> okay, close enough. <laughs> okay, all right, we're getting silly. I, I don't want this turning into the giant bombcast. We're not going to talk about wedding planning or anything like that. So, uh, John, what do you want to talk about? Uh, I would like to talk about kind of progression systems in games and what we like, what we uh, we're not going to talk about so much of what we don't like, but kind of what our what our favorite progression systems are, why we like them and what we would like to see more of. Excellent. Excellent. So, John, why don't you start us off? What's a good progression system? What do you look for in your RPGs? um, Well, I look for giving me a lot of control in my RPGs. Um, I like to be able to do crazy, wacky crap. And uh, I have been playing a lot of Rift lately. And uh, Rift does a very, very good job at letting you do whatever it is that you want to do. And I I absolutely love that. Uh, So Rift only has four classes. Um, You can be a warrior, a rogue, a mage, or a cleric. And you go into that and you say, oh, wow, that, that really sounds kind of limited and you would be completely wrong haha so each each class has a number of different souls that you can assign yourself and these souls uh so there's for for a warrior there's you know uh one two three four five six seven eight nine different souls and each of these souls do a different thing. So uh, you can be a Void Knight. A Void Knight is a defensive specialist in uh, magic. So you reflect everything back, whatever. Each of your skill trees is one of those souls. So you can say, okay, I want to be a Void Knight, a Rift Blade, and a Warlord. So that means that you're very defensive with a little bit of offense. Based on how many points you put in these trees, which give you bonuses to, you know, that type of thing, non-physical attacks, you know, ignore resists, increase your resists, you know, any number of things, you get skills that are related to that soul. So not only are you giving yourself total control over the kind of build that you have with these nine different souls, you're also giving yourself a way to progress within each of those souls. And that's not all, boys and girls. What you can do is if you don't want to say you really don't want to play the, okay, I I want to be this type and spend 20 minutes every level trying to figure out where you want your points, you can give yourself a template that says, okay, I want to be kind of an offensive warrior that has a little bit of magic. And I'll say, great, you want these three souls, we're going to put this template up, and every time you level up, we're going to suggest where you should put your points, and we're going to build you a character the way that you want. So it's friendly to newbies, it's, it's fantastic for people who want to build their own characters, and it, 
it really is the best progression system I've seen in a game single player or or MMO in quite some time. It sounds like you're you're looking for a game that lets you do what you want to do. That's kind of how you started off the whole thing where you feel like it, it's nice and open for you and you get to tailor the experience to exactly what you want to do. Am I, am I correct in bringing yeah. that all together? Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I, I know that one of you guys is going to say, well, you would like Diablo 2. I feel like Diablo 2 is too much of a do it right or you're or do it, do it this one way or you're wrong. Whereas Rift really kind of has a whole lot of builds that are worthwhile. Yeah, that's I, I've started playing it recently. And while I do love Diablo 2, it is there is a certain degree of, OK, you've made a mistake. You have to rebuild this character, which is it's OK in Diablo 2, because at this point you can get to level 70 in like three hours. But with Rift, it was cool because I, I didn't feel as I was playing like, oh, I got to be I gotta have a guide open to watch what I'm doing. I was like, oh, lightning. Cool. I want that. And then, oh, cool. This one lets me, you know, do that. And I literally just picked what sounded cool and what had cool abilities. And I felt like I was totally effective. And that kind of customization, I think, is especially rare in an MMO because it's like, well, you have to fit into this sort of archetype within the group. And I'm sure whatever I picked would eventually be some sort of archetype, but it was nice to be able to just pick what appealed to me and roll with it. Can you easily make corrections? I know Steven just made the, the point about in Diablo 2, if you screw up your character, you kind of have to restart the whole game. Yeah, you, you, can, you can respec it, just like oh, okay. every other MMO. It costs you in-game currency, but it's not crazy. Yeah, respecing to me is becoming more and more important, and I, I think John, you and I are, are similar in this way where I like having a lot of control over my characters too. Uh, we'll get to my part here in a few minutes, but I, like you said, I'm, I'm really worried about breaking my character. And I think if you have this big open system where the game is letting you tool around and tinker and get things to work, you kind of have to give people the opportunity to respec. Otherwise, you're just setting them up for, okay, the first time you play the game, you're going to just be playing around with it, trying to make things work. And then after that, well, the, now you know what you really should do. And I, I, I found that with the original Dragon Age. Like, I was leveling up my mage completely in, incorrectly, going for pure offensive spells, no crowd control things. And then when I replayed the game, I knew that I needed to get some more crowd control, and then I just blazed through the game, and I felt like I had played it the first time incorrectly. He, my thought is that the more control that a developer gives you over your character, the more imperative that it is that you have a respec. So for a game like Mass Effect 3, where really you don't have a whole lot that you can do other than say, oh, I want this ability or I want this ability to be stronger, it doesn't matter. You know, I don't care if I don't can't respect my character because if I do an extra 10% damage in one ability or another, that's not going to destroy my ability to play the game. There's no wrong choices in Mass Effect, whereas in a game like, even in Rift, there's a little bit, Rift or Amalur or, or games that give you a great deal of control, you want to change or you you decide that maybe this skill that you really liked at the beginning, not your favorite skill anymore. And you need respects. And that's something that I'd like to see in single player games. Amalur did it. Like, I, it doesn't have to be an MMO. Give me a respec, please. Man, I, I really meant to do that on... When we were talking about Dragon's Dogma and when I wrote my review, I really, really should have mentioned more and more that Dragon's Dogma, man, did that game not get enough credit for how fun 
its combat system was, how much fun it was to spec your character and try new things. Like John's saying, you could easily respec, and you've been a mage the entire game, and you could make yourself into a, a melee fighter or a, or a thief or something in between. Man, that game did skill progression in a really cool way that made you feel like you were getting more and more powerful. Ah, mm-mm-mm. That, that game, I, looking back on it, I kind of, I, I like it a lot more now than I thought I did back then. Wait, did you say Dragon's Dogma? No, no, Amalor, for God's sake. I was like, what yeah, are you talking you, about? You, you, you said Dragon's Dogma to begin with, which is why yeah. I, no, I, I... No, I said when I was talking about Dragon's uh, Dogma, uh, I wish I had mentioned... I, I'm sorry, I didn't, probably didn't say Amalor. I really wish I had talked more and more about how well Amalor handled combat and skill progression. I, I'm sorry, I can see now where the confusion came in. Which... I, I, I agree. I think when I was playing Amalur, I I played it twice. I played it once on Xbox when I reviewed it, and then I took my time and played it again on PC. Like, it just kind of explored and just kind of roamed and what what i just really love about that game is that you literally can just do whatever you want and if you don't like it you change it but it seems like almost everything was viable because i very rarely went into the strength tree but i made a ninja wizard and i was completely able to run around throwing knives stealth around and then like you know drop firebombs on people it was awesome Yay! Firebombs! Very underrated game. Uh, it's almost as cool as an which, exploding oh, tank. What, what or an I, exploding bulldozer, sorry. <laughs> That's Dead Island. Dead Island. No, uh, one thing that I, I was going to mention that I lost my train of thought, thanks, exploding bulldozer. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, what happens when bulldozers explode, man? If I could throw out mine right now, if we're ready to move on to another, another game series or another game that really does... Oh, uh, really go quick. Go ahead. Rift, going free-to-play, June 12th. Cool. Play it. I want to try it. I want to try. I got to try that in Terra. I haven't had a chance to play either of them. Terra is free to play now. Yeah, I know. I just haven't had a chance to download it. We're we're at the end of the year at school right now, which is Mr. Steinman filling out grades, writing comments, and having no free time. I haven't even finished Tomb Raider yet, and I really want to because I really like that game. I really want to finish it. Anywho, you can also uh, play FF14 with me and Steven. Uh, am I'll, I... try, I'll try Rift, and you guys try 14. I'm not in the beta for 14. I'm, I'm sad. It starts up next month. Okay, I haven't gotten Again. it. Again. I'm sad. Anywho, uh, so the game that really came to my mind is, is not a game that I consider to be a, a masterpiece or a great game, but I must have played through this game, I, I think, two summers ago. I think I played through it about seven times, because... I was so enthralled with a game, uh, and I really like games that force you to pick a role, that pick you, that require you to kind of make some decisions about what kind of character you're gonna you're gonna make and stick with them. And the game I'm talking about is uh, Vampire: The Masquerade uh, Bloodlines. And you know that that game has a whole list of problems. The last third of it is pretty terrible. You kind of should stop once you get to the Chinatown section. But what I found so cool about that game is at the very beginning of the game, you make a decision on what vampire. Um, uh, type you're going to play and what clan you're going to play. I, I forgot the terminology. And that really determines what kind of character you're going to play. So you could pick the the stealthy Nosferatu and so you're going to be going for like stealth and melee skills. Or you could pick the uh, the Toreador and be like a little bit more on the celerity side. So you're probably going to go for things that make you really fast and make you hard to hit in combat and you could mix up some gunplay in there. You could go for a Malkavian and just be crazy and force people to like, you know, just lose their mind in hysterics in the world. Each character type was so radically different, and the way the skill progression system worked is that it incentivized you to play a role. I think very few games have pulled that off well. 
And it's kind of frustrating because, um, like, the new Deus Ex, for example, I really, really like that game, very, very positive on it. But by the end of the game, you have all of the skills that you can have, for the most part. Maybe you missed out on a couple, but you're not really playing a role. At the beginning of the game, you're making decisions about what kind of Adam Jensen you're making, but by the end, all of your Adam Jensens are very similar. And I was kind of hoping that that game would make me make more meaningful decisions. I was kind of looking for that with Bioshock Infinite as well. It was kind of disappointing that, well, my character is going to be very similar to Steven's character at the end of the game. It's going to be very similar to Derek's character, very similar to John's character. Meanwhile, Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines just embraces this you are going to play a wildly different character than everybody else. Your experience is going to be different. Your interactions with characters are going to be different. How you solve quests are going to be different. And I think very few games pull that off effectively. And it, it's kind of sad to me. Like, I, I think Skyrim, to an extent, gets that right. You, you can play a melee character. You can play a stealthy character. But I want to see more games really embrace that. Okay, you make a decision, and we're going to ask you to stick with it. I think uh, the original Shadowrun on Genesis, that pulls it off very well with the three distinct character types. I mean, you're not going to be playing a mage that's going to be jacking into the Matrix. You, you literally can't do that. So you have to go out and recruit a party member to do that. I don't know. That that just this idea of being a role and forcing me into that role. I kind of wish more games would do that. Yeah, yeah. I, I can understand that somewhat. Sorry, Steven. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just gonna say, um, it, it'll connect to what I'm gonna say. So I don't know if you're ready to. You're probably not ready to move on quite yet. But that's well, similar to how I feel about like because later I'm gonna talk about the Sphere Grid and um, Final Fantasy X and the License Board in Final Fantasy XII and how there are strengths and weaknesses when they limit you to a certain path and kind of make you stick with it versus like giving you the freedom to choose whatever you want. But you go ahead and give, make your point first, Stephen. Well, I think I, I've played Vampire and I think, you know, it's buggy and I don't think all of the options are viable, but I do like that it does insist on you playing a certain type of character because I think that's sometimes what creates the best experiences. Like, I play a mage in almost everything, but I, some of the best times I've had have been like playing some new Neverwinter Nights mod where I would pick a class I don't normally play, and I'd pick a paladin, and because of that, my character would, when I'd play with my friends, my character would have a totally different role in combat. Like My job would be, i got to protect these guys, I have to draw the fire, when I talk to people, I have, a cert, I have a certain characteristic I have to be when I'm talking to people and in how I interact, and... That made it more compelling because it created a more unique experience. So if I picked, like, in the next game, like, a Red Dragon Disciple, I'm a completely different kind of character. And I think that Vampire shows its roots in being a tabletop game. The, the Vampire the Masquerade, is it Bloodlines? Yeah, Bloodlines, it's blood right? yeah, yeah. Bloodlines. I, I think that it wears its tabletopness on its sleeve very well there because that is one of the most compelling parts of a tabletop game is being... is is having to stick to a certain role as opposed to, you know, you look at like Final Fantasy VII. I like the progression system in that, but it doesn't necessitate any particular character doing any one particular thing. Definitely agree with you. I, I think that uh, having roles, it can be very tough. I, I was uh, thinking back to, uh, I mentioned it already, but uh, Dragon Age. And I played through Dragon Age multiple times because playing as a mage was a very different experience than playing as a warrior, than playing as a mage. And also the background stories and origin stories at the beginning of the game, they give you different pieces of the environment, they gave you different parts of the story that you didn't even realize. And so they incentivized you to replay it because your experience was going to change 
so drastically. I, I remember I, I thought I was going to fire up another uh, game of Deus Ex really, really quickly, and I did, and then within two hours I stopped because I was just making the exact same character again that I had made before. I know it's not an RPG, but it's so similar to it, I want to mention it. I think Dishonored did a better job because the progression system in that game you make some wildly different choices in what kind of character you're going to play at the very start. It does fall into the same problem as Deus Ex, where you are going to make a very similar Corvo at the end of the game. But it, it still forces you to play like, okay, maybe I'm going to be more of an acrobatic character. Maybe I'm going to play a character that possesses people instead. That kind of thing makes the game unique to to your ability and what you did the first time through it. And it makes you want to play it again. You want to try new things. By the end of my experience with uh, Dragon Age, I was like, okay, I'm kind of tired of my mage. I'm looking forward to playing a warrior this time. And so I was really excited to try that character for a while. I think the tabletop roots are really important, Steven. I think you hit the nail on the head there. Games that have those tabletop roots, I mean, it's all about having a party that's working together and each person has a job or a characteristic, and I think that's really cool. Yeah, I agree. I just, I think it, it makes you, it's it's sort of like, to a very tangential degree, it's sort of like why people got so attached to Mass Effect, because you made decisions that actually, you know, would impact what you had to do. And how you had to play. I mean, not as much at Mass Effect in terms of gameplay, because it was still, you know, it, it mostly played out the same. But by being forced into a certain role, you get a unique experience that is totally different from somebody else. Yep. I think we can move on. Uh, Derek, it sounded like you kind of had a, a cool way to go here with uh, Final Fantasy X and twelve. Sure. Yeah, so as usual, I, I bring up the Japanese RPGs. Well, we don't like those but, on this show, right? I, I mean, know. Uh, yeah, I mean... Like that guy Kyle. That guy Kyle. Yeah, hates put a there, put man. a quarter in the swear jar, Derek. We need, we need to stop it. I feel like we're killing him a little bit every time we make that <laughs> joke. <laughs> like poor Kyle. There's like there's like a Kyle voodoo doll that we're putting pins into, and every day he's like, oh god. Anyway, so Final Fantasy X and Final Fantasy XII, two games in the same series that have really, they they have similar character progression systems, but with some really key differences, and that's not unusual for Final Fantasy to change radically from game to game junction system. But I think these are two examples of very good progression systems that I really enjoy, but they, I, I also like the way that they handle things differently. And like I was saying before, um, each of these two games also has like an enhanced version. The, the Final Fantasy X has the international... Is it just international? Uh, that has a, like the expert sphere grid, and then twelve yeah, has yeah. the international Zodiac, uh, Zodiac job system. So both sort of like... Like Final Fantasy, it's weird, because they both start out... Like, Final Fantasy X starts out open, and then the expert... I'm sorry, Final Fantasy X starts out closed, and then the expert version gives you way more freedom, whereas FF12 starts out very open, and then the Zodiac job system narrows it down and makes it more linear. And I think that's very interesting that they did that for each game, because they saw... I'm sure in the development process, there was a pretty big gap between the two games, but they probably looked at ten and they were like, all right, how can we make this different? And then they went to twelve, and then they were like okay, maybe this wasn't perfect, so we can kind of refine it or change it a little bit. So anyway, Final Fantasy X has the Sphere Grid, which I'm sure a lot of you guys have played. Um, you know, you, you get spheres from enemies, and you put those into the little nodes, and those nodes give you bonuses like either abilities, increased stat gains, whatever. I like that. I like both versions of, of this. Well, okay, I haven't played the expert version, but I want to when it comes out in HD. But so the standard Sphere Grid is like every character has a path that's very set. So if you're Titus, you're learning all the things that give you like extra speed, 
his little abilities, um, like that do status effects and that kind of stuff. Whereas Lulu has all of her magic spells and Yuna does uh, healing stuff. Um, Kimari was the sole exception in that he could kind of go wherever you wanted him to, but he was never really as good as anyone, which was yeah. a shame. You could always break Kimari. Not to jump in there, but like I felt like Kimari was broken within the first hour I got him in Final like, Fantasy Ten. Broken in a good way or bad? No, I th- I completely screwed him up. Like I I tried to like send him down two multiple paths, so he was just turning into a jack of he, he was just a jack of all trades, master of none. And I was like, yeah. wow, they really gave me the opportunity to make this character I wanted to, and I totally screwed it up yeah i felt the same way like i never really used kimari because in 10 i found myself always switching because i wanted everybody to get experience but not kimari (laughs) poor kimari mostly just because it was hard to build him i mean you had to really plan and build him into something good so so in one sense i really i i tend to identify more with that kind of design like the characters are predetermined like they have abilities that are in line with their personalities i really like that um but for the expert sphere grid version, they sort of they they give you more freedom. They put you in the middle and they say go wherever you want to, and I think that's cool because it gives people an opportunity to play the game differently. Like, you know, I love Final Fantasy X. I've beaten it several times, and when the HD version comes out, it it's supposed to include that expert sphere grid, and that's really exciting to me because that's like a fresh way to experience the game. So I think that's a really solid character progression system. Um, any of you guys have thoughts on that before I move on to twelve? Um, I haven't played. Go ahead, Rob. No, no, no. Go ahead, Stephen. I already talked. Okay. Um, I I have not played the international version of ten. A lot of people I know were upset that at the end, you know, everybody could be pretty good, and it sort of came down to their overdrives. Like I I I just ridiculously maxed out my character, so at the end I was using Titus and Waka, and then whoever else happened to be around, just because Waka with the attack reels and maxed out attack, he could just do a gajillion damage, and then. Pretty much the same deal with Titus. He was just, you know, he had a sword. Yeah, that's pretty typical of Final Fantasy, though. Like, I mean, Final Fantasy isn't super balanced. Like, by the end of any Final Fantasy, everybody's busted. Yeah, but I think overall, I mean, it was still a really fantastic combat system that held up well. Even at the end, when everybody was overpowered, I still was having fun with it because of how addicting the progression system was. And you were constantly getting new things and branching out and that sort of thing. And, yeah, I mean, I think it was good. So, so then there's 12. Final Fantasy 12 has something very similar to the Sphere Grid, where you're still basically unlocking nodes on a board, but instead of moving along a predetermined path, they're like, all right, do whatever. And the difference in 12 is that you have to unlock the license for something before you can actually use the ability, but you still have to either buy the ability or buy the equipment. Um, it's a little bit confusing, I think, for first-time players, and a lot of people didn't really like that at first, but I've come to appreciate it a lot more Although there's, you know, like like how 10 has the very rigid paths, 12, you kind of have to know what you're doing the first time through uh, if you want to build your characters really well. It's not like it punishes you because you, you can just go and farm license points and, and make your characters however you want to. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that I, I appreciate that they went in the other direction and they said, let's open this up a lot more. And then, funny enough, they went and made uh, International Zodiac Job System, which makes specific quote-unquote jobs that you have to select for each of your characters and then they're locked into getting only certain abilities and equipment um although you know it's like they're different games though so i'm not sure that that necessarily works better for final fantasy 12 i 
we talked about the uh, Zodiac job system version of the game. I, I want to say it was like back maybe during the summer. I feel like we we talked about it recently, but you know, my my thoughts on Final Fantasy XII are just what Derek is already saying. Like when I first played the game, I, you have this massive license board open, and I was completely bewildered by it. Like, okay, what do I do here? I'm not even sure like what all these tiles do. I can't remember. Can you see what each tile is going to give you? like far enough in advance i know when you get to select like the adjacent tiles you yeah, get to see what you it can is see, you can see that, that you know you can see your adjacent abilities and then you can like hover over them and it'll say what type of tile it is yeah, and how that, much it costs but not that really when i started playing the zodiac version again that really bugged me because then i felt like i was playing a guessing game like okay there's a spell here i know there's a spell here and i'm gonna get there eventually but i'd kind of like to know what it is and so what i found was i kept everybody in the original version of the game I kept everybody on the same path, and I, you know my my thoughts on the magic system in that game and how it handles loading. I just focused on melee attacks the whole time, so I made three of the exact same characters. With the Zodiac system, I felt like that was changed for the better, but I do think that keeping that stuff hidden and not letting you see exactly what was coming up was kind of kind of screwed up in a way. And also I... in, the, in the Zodiac system, some like two of the character classes are completely useless. Like, they're awful character classes that don't have any inherent strength. They're just like... And, of course, I picked one like, of them. They learn techniques and stuff? Yeah, they, they, they learn just, like, lame stuff. And so... But there are some really cool character classes in there, too. So I think the Zodiac system was a step in the right direction, but I still I still don't feel like they got that game working the way it could have. I, I Well, I think, again, that comes down to the fact that so many people had their hand in making that, and it was so all over the place. I think the Zodiac system was a good way to improve it and you did have some classes that weren't as useful i don't i don't agree that not being able to see what the things had was any particular problem because you're going to need to get them all eventually anyway and it's not like you know you're going to get something that's going to substantially change your character other than well here's more skills in this direction you know you're going to go for that and like the weapons it's just like well all right that's i know i need weapon two before weapon four so i didn't feel like it was freeform enough to matter that you knew exactly what you were getting but I, I, I did think it was an improvement, and I think the Zodiac system overall really improved that game. It still has the kind of meandering plot at the end, and uh, you know your characters still do kind of come down to the sort of they're either hitting a lot with a physical attack or they're casting magic. But I think it was it was a step in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that they could. You know, part of me really wishes that they would revisit Final Fantasy XII. That feels like the rough draft of a fantastic game like that and, and i still enjoyed it when i played it uh, god man i was a i was a junior in college oh i feel really old right now uh, i was a freshman in college oh my god uh and i still really enjoyed it and i think that that was such a maybe final fantasy 13 was a bit of a response to that a response to all the criticism about how open it was and how stifling that was to the player that then with final fantasy 13 they wanted to make a more guided experience i mean you, you could make the argument that hey my complaints about how open the original version could be one of the reasons why we ended up with 13 and mm -hmm. i to me 13's uh not to harp on my favorite final fantasy but uh 13 I, I just feel like that's the sphere grid, except far less interesting. I, I have problems with the sphere grid, to back up a sec, 
I didn't find it to be a very good system until it opens up at like the midway point of the game and you get to make decisions about which path to send on. I'm kind of interested to see where the expert system goes and me being able to play it again. Maybe I'm just going to end up with a whole party of Kamaris. I don't know. But uh, I hope to God not. But like to me, the Crystarium is just like you took the one interesting part of the sphere grid and you screwed it up. Like, yeah, no, I, I agree. I don't, I don't even get pretty it. much just like because well, yeah, because you can't actually customize your characters at all until the very very end of the game. So maybe in a way you're right that they were trying to they they were like okay well FF12 was too big let's let's condense it again but I mean they just got to learn to not go so extreme. I think it was more just a de- I think again if you've read a lot of the development history of 13 it's the same exact thing as 12 it's like nobody knew where it was going or what direction it was supposed to be in. So they had to go with something eventually. And I think that's part of the problem with Square Enix's protracted development cycle is just that you have so many hands in the pie and so many people making input that it's not like, you know, early on you have to commit to a certain type of design and say, this is the game we're making. And I think all the cut material from 13 and all the the stories of, well, we didn't know if it was going to have this or that is an indication of why you got such a linear experience in every sense of the word, like your progression through not only your characters, but also through the game. Speaking of uh, 13, Rob, I just wanted to say I'm not the only person in the world with a Lassie tattoo, apparently, because I was at the grocery store yesterday, oh, and this no. guy was like, this guy comes up to me, he's like, hey, dude, can I see your tattoo? And I was like, what? Like, so I, I, I was like, okay. So I rolled up my sleeve, and he's like, dude, check it out. And he like pulls up his freaking sleeve and shows me his massive bicep. He's like, I'm a Lassie, too. Oh, God. Oh. And I was like, Jesus. <laughs> I was like, cool, bro. That's when you should have been like, well, good luck with that crystallization thing. Right. His had the eye eye on it, and I was like, you know, ouch, you're pretty far along. Oh, no. Okay. Um, I don't want to get negative on Square Enix, so I think we're ready to talk about one of the... uh, I I think we're all huge fans of it, and I I just want to gush over it for a second. It kind of fits with the Zodiac system. Good lord. Final Fantasy Tactics. I love that game so much. You talk about a broken busted progression busted. system it's that broken. is broken it's, it's not broken busted. for a reason so you can just have fun with it yeah, i love it i have to agree with rob that it is broken and and it scares me to agree with rob i think it's broken yes but not busted oh okay i i think that you're playing a semantics game here <laughs> i just like saying i am a little busted. bit <laughs> but i i think it's broken in the same way that most triace games are broken um which by the way i love valkyria profile twos uh, kind of rune system. I think that was a great progression system. But it, it's broken in a way that that you can make yourself incredibly powerful by doing strange things. Yep. Calculator. <laughs> I still don't understand how a calculator works. I watched a YouTube video of it just like obliterating an entire battlefield, allies and all in one like, attack. What happened? My, my thing with that game is that it, it really is, it's obtuse, but in a way that it's sort of not. Like, if you think of something weird, like, hey, I'll try that, it probably works. Like, that, that's sort of why I think the other, the other two tactics games, although I've been playing Advance 2, it's a little bit better, but they tried to balance it really hard in Advance and Advance 2, and as a result, some of the sort of magic was lost. With tactics, it's so chaotic and so many crazy things that can happen is part of where the fun comes from. It is like, yeah, you really could make, you know, a monk at the beginning of the game, he's got a billion attack power, and then give him Blade Grasp, and then Max is brave out if it's Ramza, and nothing can ever hit him, and he punches everything to death. And if you get dual wield, he literally double punches everything to death, and nothing can stop him. 
I think I did the uh, what does blade grass do again? I forget. Blade grass. It, it's like you catch the a physical attack and your oh, brave blade is the grasp. Oh, okay. It's the percentage. Oh yeah. No, it's the percentage chance that you will miss a physical attack based on your brave. So if your brave is ninety seven, there's a three percent chance you can be hit by physical attacks. Oh my god. <laughs> So my second time through tactics, when I was a little kid, I go, well, why wouldn't I do this? And I did it. And I'm like, all right, well, I can win every battle with just Ramses, so that's what I'll do. Can you still blade grasp even when then they attack you from behind? Because I know I always used to do that yes. thing in tactics where I would be like moving my characters behind no matter what. I would just, I would never have them fight them straight up. I, oh, could, I, I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it works universally. So my Ramses literally one-shotted everything and couldn't be killed. That is devastating. That oh, really awesome. I, I did the um, making a bunch of ninjas and then uh, using their, like, what is it, move plus two. And then I gave that to all my mages. So I just had these super ridiculously fast mages that could start casting spells on the opposition within the first round. Because they would just <laughs> all move forward, charge, and I would actually get off, like, fire four and ice four before the enemies could even move. And then there's Orlando. You know, what's funny is because my Ramza was so powerful, I, when I got Orlando, I was like, yeah, all right, whatever, this guy's pretty good, I guess. My Ramza was so much better that for, like, years, I was like, why does everybody complain about Orlando being broken? So is Ramza. So, uh, rather than talk about how powerful my characters were, um, one of the reasons why I really dig Final Fantasy Tactics is that it provides that same, okay, you can build your character however you want. And while it doesn't provide you with a respec, you can unequip and equip skills. And the fact that you can say, okay, I want to build this guy as a mage with samurai skills. Okay, you can do that. You just got to level up samurai on that character a little bit and get the skills that you want. And it provides a, a way to get whatever skill it is that you want on whatever character. Yep. Yeah, um, and that actually works in that game, unlike other games. Like Final Fantasy XI has a job support job system, but support job, like there are a lot of job combinations that just aren't viable. Like I remember starting the game and being like, oh my god, I could be, you know, I could be like a Dragoon sub summoner, and I can like go around and jump on guys, and then I can like summon Ifrit, and it's like, no, that doesn't actually work because, you know, Various things limit you, like your small in people or whatever the case may be. Plus, there was the fact that the player base was like super picky about stuff. But in tactics, you can do that and like, sure, whatever, have fun, you know, like pick whatever crazy combination you want. And if it works, it works. You're, you're only limited by really like your imagination. At you that know, point. By I, your imagination. I spent literally hours and hours and hours looking for group in Yatunga jungle as a warrior monk. Because that place sucks. Yeah. So now, uh, I didn't play Advance or Advance 2, A2, whatever it's called. When we, t we talked in the pre-show about how A2 was a better game, so I, I want to ask, what did Advance do to change Final Fantasy Tactics, and then how did A2 make it better? Because that kind of seemed to be the consensus. Well, so the both? biggest thing they did... Sorry, go ahead, John. No, they both added a shitload of jobs. Oh, ah. You know what? I'm That's keeping getting, it in. I'm keeping it in. We're talking That's about getting good honked. stuff. I, they, well, they added a ton of jobs, but what they did is they tried really hard to balance everything. And in advance, what it is now is you get your abilities from items, kind of like Final Fantasy IX, which on the surface sounds kind of cool because, you know, it, it helps them pace at, you know, when you get certain abilities. Like, you can't get to the second battlefield and grind job points until you have Meteor. But, um... The problem is that it sort of devolved into every class kind of being the same because every class had an Ultima move. 
And so it would be like, it, it kind of was like, yeah, I have a black mage. Yeah, well, I have a warrior. We're both just going for Ultima Blade or Ultima the spell. And it sort of, it made it a lot less interesting to mix and match because they, the things that were overpowered before were nerfed to the point where they were no longer interesting as a skill. Uh, can we, are we ever going to get another Final Fantasy Tactics? Do you I want hope. one from them right now? Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, <good>. oh. That's true. <laughs> hey, there's the, uh, there's like the Final Fantasy tower defense games on iOS that are in the Tactics 2 universe. Herp, oh, herp. Crystal Defenders? That's not, that's not a bad game. I have the PSP version. Really? Yeah. I, I really feel like Tactics is kind of the secret best Final Fantasy game ever made. No, it's it's fantastic, and we we talked about this on Rhythm Encounter with Casey. Is that how interesting Evilius is as a world, and how the progression systems are always really interesting in those? I would love to play a well directed, like get Matsuno, get Itoshi Sakimoto, get everybody involved that you know should be involved, and then let them do what they want to do. Uh, what was I listening to the other day? Uh, I can't remember what podcast it was, but you know getting ready to end the third season of game of thrones and remembering how like into that story even though you know good lord knows that english translation was rough in the original final fantasy tactics but that game was so personal and i hadn't played a game like that before and i i I can only think of like vagrant story on that same level of just a deeply personal story about all about characters and their interactions and then i remember being so pissed when it turned into the bog standard oh boy magic crystals world ending a need to fight god yay like i i want a final fantasy tactics game that just embraces that game of thrones like this is about people vying for power trying to take over a kingdom we're not gonna have magic crystals we're not gonna have you know freaking you fighting god just make it personal that that to me speaks so much more like that's what i'm looking for now Personally, I think Tactics, the original, did a good job balancing that character story with the fighting god thing. I thought it was interesting and done well. But I think that is a problem that a lot of JRPGs face is that they're like, oh, well, we have to up the stakes. It has to you have to fight God. You have to fight, you know, and tact, you know, I don't think a lot of people realize that a story can seem incredibly high stakes if you just get people invested in the characters total aside and while personas three and four both have the whole save the world shtick going for them Uh the reason that those games are so engaging is because of the everyday stuff in it like absolutely you go you're going to school you're talking to these characters that's what makes it important what makes it important i don't care if i need to go fight nicks i don't care if i need to to well i guess the I, I guess in Persona 4, it wasn't Save the World. It was Solve This Mystery, which... Yeah, like, it became Save the World in, like, the final hour. But yeah. It, it fit in with the rest of stuff, and for the vast majority of the time, the scope is just, yeah, people are being murdered in this town. And I think that's that's one of the reasons that 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 was so quality and so, you know, kind of grabbing... I think it's because. Go ahead. Sorry, I I think it's because, in the you know back in the day, like on like Super Nintendo and PlayStation, you had limited hardware and you had sprites, and it was like, well, how can we draw people into this? What do we do? And a lot of the plots were, we have to make it this big epic, sort of thing to draw people in. But 
as hardware gets better, you know, and we've seen that sort of plot over and over again, you know, you really re- come to realize that you don't have to blow up the universe to make people care. You just have to demonstrate that there is, these are characters that you want to to work with. And I think that's what Persona does really well. Does Tactics Ogre devel- uh, devolve into you versus God? I don't know and don't say because I okay. have, I'm actually playing that right now. Okay. I, so I, far, no, it's awesome. I just really want another Tactics. I really, really – or even a front mission. God, get, throw me a freaking bone here. Like, ah. A freaking bone here. You yeah. just, I, I imported Front Mission 2089 not too long ago, the, the DS1 that was originally a mobile game that we never got here. How was it? It's Front Mission. Okay. <laughs> I on, honestly going back to the old style front missions without link is tough because you know what playing front mission five which really is the best front mission game out there the link system in that game works so well which this is a good progression you know you you have character skills that you get during battle you have mechs that you build outside of battle and that works all together with your strategy because to have characters link the right way, you need to make sure that they complement each other. Was Front Mission 5 released in America? I'm nope. looking Okay, yeah, I'm looking on Amazon right now. That looks like a big fat nyet. It uh I definitely I haven't played many Front Missions, but I, I definitely think if you want another tactics, you really need to just play Tactics Ogre on PSP because it's it's everything you love about Tactics just without Final Fantasy stuff. I know, I know. Ah, oh, man. I it's just, essentially you know, Final Fantasy Tactics Zero. Yeah. Yeah. I lost my uh, Tactics Ogre Tarot card deck, and I'm so bummed about it. Because Yoshida's art for that game is phenomenal. It's like, I know exactly what I want out of Square Enix, but I, I do agree with Steven. Like, I'm kind of nervous if they ever did make another Tactics. What are they going to have? Like, motorcyclist, uh, gymnastics professional. Yes! I actually want that. Motorcyclist, are you it's, kidding it's, me? It's not Square Enix that I want to make another Tactics. I want them to sign off on letting Matsuno make another Tactics. Yeah. Do we know where he so, is? Oh, yeah, that's right. He he made that, Um. Oh, what was it called? Uh, Crimson Shroud. Yeah, and there then, it is. Uh, he left level five, so now he's moving on to something else. Oh, man. So not to, I don't want to take us too far off topic, but in terms of progression systems, another game that I thought, well, all right, so I have two that I want to mention, but the first one is another Square Enix game that, Half half of people hate it, half people love it. It's Chrono Cross. Love it. I love it too because I'm I have appropriate judgment. Uh, <laughs> so damn Chrono Cross. Hey, Chrono Cross allows you to make a pink dog into like the ultimate warrior <laughs> in the universe. I just I, I hate how people Actually, are Xenogears so. Xenogears lets you do that too. <laughs> Xenogears, the best character in Xenogears can be what's his name? The the the, the thing. Choo choo. Choo choo, yeah. If you eat enough stuff and feed him enough of those tabs, he becomes so strong because his char- his gear is tied to his character stats. So you can make his gear do like a million damage if you grind him long enough. Oh god, I I, I just love how people hate on Chrono Cross now. It ticks me off so much. That's such like, a good I, game. I, I again, I don't want to take us into a discussion of that because of you know we're talking about progression systems, but I do think a lot of people were expecting something different, and that's why they were disappointed. And some people like to argue the plot, whatever. But what was cool about Chrono Cross is that just by fighting battles, you got progression. Like, it wasn't as customizable as a lot of other games, but the original Chrono Trigger wasn't either. But it was just cool to be, yeah, every random battle you fight, you get something out of it because you get a stat boost, you get another boost. You fight a boss, you get a star, and that raises the maximum cap for what you can do. So 
playing through the game multiple times. It's not like Chrono Trigger where you get to level 99 in like a second playthrough and then that's it. You're done growing. Chrono Cross, you could continually get stars. I don't remember what the maximum was. But 99, was, I think. No, I think it might have been higher than that because I remember getting like well beyond that, like really? into like a third or fourth playthrough. I'm, it it might have been 99. but I think it took three playthroughs to max out. I feel like it was like the middle of the third playthrough I, I finally hit it. Yeah, like three full to the end of the game playthroughs. Yeah. Like if you did shorter endings, you wouldn't get as far. But, I, you know, that was a system that I found really interesting because it made every fight worth fighting rather than just it didn't feel like you were ever grinding. It was just, yeah, I just fought a battle and I got two more attack power. Cool. It, it's really the um, I, I, I don't mean to do this. I don't mean to be attacking 13 again, but they're very similar. <laughs> no, 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 no. They're very similar in that they, they limit how far your character can progress until you earn another star from beating a boss. And the Crystarium like shuts off at points and won't let you keep expanding. But I, I just feel like Chrono Cross, for whatever reason, did it better. I, I, I can't put my finger on it, but I think that game just did that whole system of, you know, Chrono Cross isn't very hard. There's like one or two boss fights that are tough, but by not letting you over-level too much, they, they keep the game fun and interesting, but it didn't feel nearly as like, wow, I literally can't go anywhere on this Crystarium right I now. Think, That's lame. I think... It I think that tied into two things. One of them is that in Final Fantasy XII, abilities you mean have 13 a different or... sort of... Yeah, in, in thirteen, your abilities function differently than they do in Chrono Cross. In Chrono Cross, your abilities are, you know, they're magic that you get from elements, and you're getting those even as you're not leveling up. And you, you know, they func they're a lot more powerful than individual abilities in thirteen because abilities in thirteen are more or less, you know, everything is a tool to build up the gauge or to do something. Everything has a function. Chrono Cross, it's like you're attacking different elements and stuff. And I think also, 13, your Crystarium levels up, I think, what, nine times? It, I, it, I don't know how many times. A bunch. It's, much, it's much more infrequent than in Chrono Cross, where every time you beat a boss or a major monster, you're getting a star. So the pacing is better, and you're getting elements as well. So I think, I think that's why it feels different. As soon as you said beat a boss, I was just like da 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 da. That sounds like it'll be featured in an upcoming podcast that involves music. Oh god, I love that soundtrack. Can we just do a whole episode of Rhythm Encounter about that soundtrack? I actually have already asked that, and I was told no. Why? Because we have to. We can't. We can't just do a game. I, well, we can. No, I think we can. If it's that good of a soundtrack, I think we can. I. To get back on topic, I'm sorry. Uh, I agree with you, Stephen. I think it's the fact that you you are constantly leveling up after you get that star, and there are so many boss battles in that game. I think there's like 35 boss battles in it or something ridiculous, and that that just keeps you coming back for more and more, and it, and it doesn't feel like it's shutting you off. And also, the battles are fun. I, I don't care what anybody says. I find the battles fun. No, I, love, I agree. I, it, I it's the junction there's... system done right. And, That's and what the I always tell people. I, the stamina thing is... I just think there's a lot of it's a cool combat system. It's a fun turn-based system that has a few wrinkles in it that you don't normally see. And like the ele the element thing is used really well. Yep. You said you so, had another, you said you had another game in there too? Yeah, what I also wanted to mention was I'm sorry to continually go to Square Enix here, but Crisis Core. Crisis Core had a crazy level up system where you randomly you would get the slot machine, the uh the uh, D something M or whatever, the 
DMV. I think it was DMW. That's what it was. DMV to level up. I would never go to the DMV to level up. It was the DMW, and basically it would it would randomly come up, and the slots, if they aligned a certain way, you'd get a stat up. If they aligned another way, you get an attack. If you aligned another way, you know, various things would happen. So it was very random and chaotic, but it kind of worked out in the end. And then you had a materia fusion system that. I don't know why Square Enix doesn't keep the fusion systems because they're awesome. Like, it worked great in Birth by Sleep, like, where you're getting commands, and it's like getting cards. Only It's like demons in Shin Megami Tensei, only each one is a new attack. And which sort of brought me unintentionally to Birth by Sleep, where you had commands. That was a really cool progression system, too. Um, you know, it's like, hey, I found a new move. I can fuse it with another thing and get something totally different. And, you know, it's unpredictable and cool. Yay, progression systems. I can't think of a current progression system that I'm like... In a, I feel like we're talking about a lot of old stuff. I can't think... Uh, yeah, like, you brought up Rift at the very start, John, but I can't, like, think of any that I'm really in love with right now. I, I liked uh, Resonance of Fates. Even if I didn't like how the battle system worked, the progression was cool. Where you could have a gun with, like, eight scopes and three barrels and stuff. I, I'm thinking about progression systems outside of RPGs, and it is it suffers from the same thing that I was talking about in my part, where it's like, you know, playing Tomb Raider right now or Batman. I'm gonna end up with all those skills eventually. It's just a choice of what order do I get them in, and I, I don't find that to be nearly as interesting. Like I, I would I would be having a much better time with Tomb Raider if I had, you know, this picking this skill cuts me off from these skills. Instead, it's just well, do I want to get the headshot skill first or the ammo skill first? Well, I think that's well, something that you're going to see regularly in mainstream games. Yeah, yeah. Tri- yeah. AAA games don't the, cutting you off from a thing is not friendly to the the player who just wants to play their game once, blast through it, beat it, and then they're done with it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, th- I think that's fair, and I, I think we see that especially in Skyrim with how easy it is. I mean, both both a positive and a negative. We talked about with Amalur, but how easy it is to switch character classes to kind of let you do whatever you want to do. So, you know. I don't know. I, I, I like talking about progression systems because I think that's one of the things that RPGs still have. Even though we see progression systems in yeah. other genres, I feel like it's still the best in terms of giving you variety and variability in your playstyle in the RPG. No, I, I have to agree there. And that's because that's the audience. Yeah, we want that. We want a new Final Fantasy Tactics. Hint, hint, Square Enix. Please. Please, I, I will take Please. back. Every, I'll take back everything bad I've said about you guys. If I got no, a Final Fantasy Tactics, no, you won't. No, I actually. If I got another Final Fantasy Tactics, that should I get a two? Should I get it? It's like thirty bucks on Amazon. Should I do it? It's pretty mm-hmm. fun. I, it's, I, I enjoyed it. I would. It's not on the same level as you know regular original Tactics, but it's still a good I, game. Honestly, I have to suggest Tactics Ogre more than a two. Well, Me too. I know. Me I know. Too. I know. I know. Okay. So I have news. Should we start with the uh, the X-Bone? Oh, yeah. That that actually wasn't even on my news list. So, yes, we'll talk about okay. the X-Bone. Can, can I just get, just briefly give my thoughts? Just I'm, I'm not going to be negative, actually, because, uh, you know, the Internet exploded with anger, rage, and hate, uh, especially on Twitter. Like, I was talking to Stephen while the whole conference was going on, and the snark between the two of us was insane. But, you know, let's be real honest here. E3 is going to be a way, way better conference. They're going to have games to talk about. They're going to show some really, really cool stuff. Everybody should be excited for what they have to talk about at E3. My two biggest problems with this conference. One, 
and I, I think John will talk about it in a second, but I'm gonna I'm gonna hold him back. But it was not directed at the hardcore gamers. That shouldn't be taken as an insult. I mean, Microsoft has made a ton of money marketing to the guys that buy Call of Duty, Madden, and those are the predominant games they buy. That those are the guys that are really paying for their systems. That's cool. I get why they did that. I had a problem with the focus on like television, and at one point I put on Facebook, "Oh, thank God, I can follow my fantasy football on my Xbox One." These these kind of felt like things that I don't think anybody was really excited about. Whereas the Call of Duty announcement at the end of the game, that is something that people are excited about. My biggest issue with this whole conference was the negativity surrounding the new Xbox and how people were confused about Always Online, confused about the used game sales, confused about this, conflicting reports. I'm remembering David Jaffe on a bonus round on Game Trailer saying we don't know and he was getting real angry about all the rumors and everything that were going on. And they their main job was to come out and do damage control, and we came out more confused. I I think John will be able to to condense it down to what we know right now, but they really didn't answer anything, and they they really did come across like politicians during this whole thing. It was bizarre, bizarre. I think that's I think that's fully intentional. I, I I'm a cynic. Personally, no. I don't think. I, Personally, I don't think we're going to see anything interesting at E3. I think we're going to see new franchises that are designed to appeal to the people who they want to buy Xbox. Because the the market that buys Madden and Call of Duty makes them a ton of money buying $15 map packs and roster updates and online passes to play Madden online. And that's totally cool. They're not going to be like, well, we want to get some JRPGs on here. Because those don't make the huge dollar signs. And I think... The, I think the whole method of not talking and people not being informed on the used policies, I think that's fully intentional. They know how politics work. If you skirt around an issue and don't really address it, people are confused and they might make a decision while they're confused. And by not outright saying you got to pay a fee. I, I, I'm not so sure about that because it's not as if people are making a decision today. True, true. Like, I mean, I... I, I I think that what happened was that there was not a clear message. I think that the only person who had a PR handler was Harrison. And there there wasn't really a clear message. You had Xbox support tweeting at people about this, which never should have happened. Never. And that's where a lot of the misinformation came from. You had interviews with non-primary sources. It, they did a crappy job at making sure that they had a a single message, which I, it's not particularly surprising for Microsoft for me, but they're a big company. They should know what they're doing when it comes to providing a unified message. Uh, I agree. It, 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 it seems like a lot of times, though, that's Microsoft's problem in terms of PR, is that they aim so big and they want to capture so many markets that they sort of... They shoot in a, in a general direction, but they don't focus in on one thing. I ah, Man, I just was like, I, I was cringing at this whole conference. And then, you know, I they <laughs> show Call of Duty. And we're talking about the dog for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was like... <laughs> the dog is going to die. 
Oh yeah, it's like come on, like really? And and you know what? People care about that stuff. That's the highest selling franchise right now in games. I get it. But like it, it was eye rolling when they were like, and guess what, guys? Y'all should get excited. And I'm like leaning toward the TV. I'm like, what is it? What is it? Forza's coming. I'm like, oh, another news. The sun came up this morning. Like, this is the stuff that I, this is the reason I don't own a 360. It's not because I have a problem with the device. I mean, you can play almost all the same games on 360 and PS3. The reason I don't own a 360 is because I'm not interested in Halo, Forza, or Gears of War. That, that's the thing, is that their exclusives are tailored to who makes them the most money. And that's, that's, that's what a business does. Yeah. That's why I think, like, early in the 360, you saw them really courting, like, Miss Walker and stuff, and they were really pushing... But I think the the industry changed a lot in that now it's a lot more like the film industry where you're there. You know, if you're going to invest, if a big publisher is going to invest in something, they're going for the thing that's going to sell millions of copies. Like, look at Square Enix. What is it called? Sold like three million. And that was a, a failure. That's the market that Microsoft is going for. They're going for the market that's going to buy a new Madden every year, new Call of Duty every year. And they're willing to buy this. And I, I don't think that market is us. And I personally don't think that they're going to make a strong push for that. They've already said they're not looking, they're not changing their publisher policies for indie developers. They, they came out and said that today it's going to be the same. I think that's so, crazy, personally. I think, it, I, I think I, you know what, I don't think it's crazy from a business standpoint. Because they're going to sell these. Because I have friends on my Facebook who are total into Xbox. And they were like, everything on that looked awesome, dude. And, you know... That's great. If they like it, that's cool. And this is going to sell to those people. It's going to make them money because they're targeting an audience that isn't looking for a Lost Odyssey. They're looking for Madden and early DLC for Call of Duty because that's well, I think what they're I think we're in like the period where the indie developers are, are becoming a serious, you know, it, it's becoming a really big part of, of the console's strength. Like, for Xbox to pretty much just be like, okay, whatever, PS4 can have all the indie developers. It's like, really? You're gonna I, miss out on some crazy good stuff. And I, I, I don't know if true. like the if the big budget stuff is gonna be enough I, to make up for that. Here's my thought though, is that Microsoft is playing to their strengths. And while stuff like Braid and Limbo and and that sort of thing were successful, they were successful using the same type of of publishing scheme on the original Xbox three sixty. I, yeah, I don't think indie games make them enough money that they're going, oh, that's worth us putting effort into it. They go, right. we know what we can sell and make a ton of money. So he, here's here's where I see things going is Sony is targeting the hardcore gamer. They want people that play all sorts of video games all the time, and they're going to take the Call of Duty guys and the sports guys just the same. They're going to be successful worldwide. They're going to be the number one console in Europe. They're going to be the number one console in Japan. And they're going to be the number two console in North America. Microsoft is going to do exactly what they did with the 360. And they're going to take the North American market by storm. I Okay, finish, 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 finish. Sorry. Because they're going after the average North American gamer. Like they're they're going after that guy that Steven mentioned, the guy who buys all four Call of Duty map packs, the guy who subscribes to Call of Duty Elite, the guy who who buys sixty dollars of FIFA cards every two months. I think you're right in that 
I expect the Xbox One, which God, I I can't stand calling the it the X, Xbox. The X Bone. Uh, yeah, I think we got to call it the Bone. I, I just like calling it the Bone. If the Bone, I'm gonna try. My, I, I'm really gonna try to make this <laughs> we, work. We really, we really <laughs> need bone. to change this. <laughs> <laughs> the Bone. I think the Bone will win in North America. I agree with John there. I think that the divide in sales numbers between the Bone and the PlayStation Four is going to be minuscule. I and think... I, I, I think... Oh, hold, hold, on, hold on. I just want to get this out there. Sorry. I just want to get this out there. I think Microsoft needs to be really nervous about the fact that, A, they're not out in front, which is one of the big... That you got to give them props. They got out a year early, and they hammered the PlayStation 3 because of it. And then Sony didn't do themselves any favors by coming out and blowing their own toes off with a six hundred dollar console, US dollars. and only idiots. Hi, how you doing? My name is Robert Steinman. Bought that thing for six hundred dollars, and I think that I think Microsoft is going to regret this. I really, they're expecting to have the exact same success, but I think the two key factors, they ain't there, and I don't think Call of Duty map packs are what's going to make the difference here. And I, I expect, I expect the Bones going to win. But I think in North America, it's going to be very close. Rob, if you don't think Call of Duty map packs are what's going to win, you're not looking at the market. Because, honest to God... Those make so much money. Yes, that is... I I am sure that a Call of Duty map pack makes more money than half of the games out there. Well, I just... That's that's why they keep doing it. Like, remember when the first one came out and there was all that outrage? It's $15 and two of the maps are from the last Call of Duty. And we were all like, this is ridiculous. And meanwhile, all of my friends that play Call of Duty were like, dude, the new map pack is awesome. Maybe you no, guys are right there. Even, Sorry, Derek. Even from, it's okay. I was just, it's not really like, it's not a business opinion. I mean, I completely understand how that business works. I get why they do it. They make tons of money. It sells to lots of people. It, all of it makes complete sense to me. I just think it's crap. I mean, like, honestly, I, I feel like it's, I, I just think it's lowbrow garbage. Like, it's not what I'm interested in as a gamer, but I'm not the target audience, so. Well, I mean, lowbrow garbage is well, is popular in every medium. Yeah, look at, Star Trek popu- into, look at Star Trek Into Darkness. Oh, I'm going to punch he, you, Rob. He did it! <laughs> I knew it. All right. Look, no, let, let's be honest. Iron Man 3 is entertaining. It's lowbrow, though. It's not meant to be intellectually stimulating it's entertaining what what are the top two book series in north america right now yeah like i'm not arguing that what what are they my it's i know it's successful that doesn't make it good though my my guess is twilight and 50 shades of gray wow i i I hate myself right now (laughs) well i'm sure game of thrones is doing pretty well but that's only because it's got a tv (laughs) adaptation and because boobs Oh, God. Uh, no, I, I just... I think Microsoft... Uh, this is the same hubris that we saw out of Nintendo okay. after the Super Nintendo. This is the same hubris that we saw out of Sony, out of the PlayStation 2. 599 I, US dollars. I really think they are going to be looking back on this going... And, and I think, just based off of the messaging that we got at that conference, they don't have it together the way Sony has it together, but the reason Sony has it together is because of how poorly they did this console generation. See, I think that marketing message is not necessarily equivalent to business. 
like you can have someone who has a very coherent business plan True. that has a crappy marketing message and vice versa. Yeah. Like I I I have faith in Microsoft in regards to them producing a product that's going to do well in the mass market. And it, and let me preface that the North American mass market. Right. It, this thing ain't going to sell gangbusters in Japan, let's be honest here. And I, I think I, I think also too You there? Steven? Steven? We lose you? Oh, hey, sorry. I accidentally clicked mute. Okay. Come back. Um, I think what what the we haven't really talked about it and the internet has been talking about it forever is the used games thing. I think given the market they're targeting to put that kind of limitation in place is going to shoot them in the foot. Yep. Because GameStop GameStop will do one of two things. They they won't carry it, which is not going to happen. Or they'll raise their, they'll lower their prices of the used games by whatever the fee supposedly is. Although there are rumors that the fee is the full price of the game. Now that on um, where whereas that mainstream audience doesn't care about a lot of things, that mainstream audience, at least my friends that that are in this target, all buy used games and they all go, that's ridiculous. Why would you know? So I think limiting that will cause them to lose sales. Yeah. Although on the other hand. Sony had Sony said, you know, we'll allow you to play used games, but that could also be PR speak. We'll allow you to play used games after you pay a fee. So we don't know what Sony's doing either, but I I think that that will have more backlash than they people supporters think. All right, I'm tired of the expo. Let's move on. I agree. I agree. Let's E3 is going to be fun. I I you know what I'm excited for at E3? I'm excited for seeing new games. That's that's all. I want to watch these conferences. I want new games. I want to have the yeah. excitement running through my system the way it did at the start of this console generation, where I saw, you know, stuff that we never got to, you know, even play or things that look half that good. I'm just excited to see games. That's all I want to see right now. I want to. I, I just want to see games. I think okay. we've reached a point in time where hardware doesn't matter anymore. Like, you can play a game that looks as good as it looks on the computer on your freaking cell phone. All that matters to me is software. That is what's going to determine if I bother getting a PS4. I love my PlayStation 3. I've always liked my PlayStation stuff because of the exclusive games. But now that I have a good computer and almost everything is released on that computer, if there isn't something I can't get on PC because it's on console, then I'm not going to invest in it. And that's why like, I know my Xbox 360 doesn't get much use because I'm not interested in the exclusives. And that's why I like my handhelds because they have experiences that you generally don't get elsewhere. And that's why, again, I'm excited for E3 too. Here's my thought, and and this is it. We're going to close after this because I want the last word. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, sure, dude. I have a feeling, I have a feeling that the, that after this generation, that the Xbox is going to cease to be a console and it's going to start beginning to be an environment. So like you'll have Xbox in your cable box, you'll have Xbox in your television, you'll have Xbox in in whatever. I've got Xbox in my phone now. I get achievements when I play mobile games. Like mm. it it's going to become an ecosystem rather than a console. Possibly. I think you ju- I think you just wanted to mention your Windows phone. I please buy more. I would like to see <laughs> apps. Is the win- That's exactly my Is friend, that's exactly what I said about Palm Pre, and you know what? Nobody bought it, and it didn't get apps, <laughs> hey, and it hey, died. Hey, it's it's up to a couple percentage. So was Palm for a little while. All right, news. I'm going to cross my fingers for you. All right, ah, news. news. Class of Heroes 2, June 4th. 
Cool. I'm going to uh, take you to school. Okay. It's going to be twenty four ninety nine. Uh, it's from uh, Monkey Paw Games and our good friend Victor Ireland of Working Designs fame. It is a monkey's paw. It is very dangerous. Yes. Are you going to wish? Are you going to wish for world peace? No. What? I'm making Simpsons references. I know. Dude. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, for a little while. The Blizzard closed. The, I don't know if it's still closed. I don't know. Uh, the Diablo 3 auction houses because uh, players were able to exploit that very, very easily. How do people find this stuff? Like, how did how do they figure this stuff out? Does it just happen magically? Well, here's here's you know what? As as someone who works uh, partially in QA, think about this. So I, I have an enhancement that goes into my company's website. And I have one QA person that can give a short amount of time to that. And I have maybe a fifth of my week that I can put into actual QA. So that's 16 hours for an enhancement. At the moment that goes live, in a single day, 50,000 people hit that particular enhancement. So they've already done, you know, 10,000 times the amount of testing that we could do. That's true, but like with the with like the dragon head glitch in Dark Souls, I'm like, how did somebody figure that out? How did somebody figure out that if they did that, like, I feel like I would get one of those glitches and not even notice that I did it. <laughs> like, I would just be like, wow, that was what just happened. What? So oh, I, I mean, yeah, it, so, hap- it happens. Yeah, apparently, it broke the whole ecosystem of the auction house, uh, and they started banning people for Diablo three. So, yikes. Yep. Um, here's something that's really cool. If you ever wanted to make a game with RPG Maker, but like, I really don't want to make a sprite-based JRPG, uh, CD Projekt Red released what's called the Red Kit, which you can build RPGs using the Witcher 3, or Witcher 2 engine, rather. That's an engine I wouldn't mind working in. And here's the kicker. It's free if you own a registered copy of the Witcher 2. Love you guys! Uh, crazy. As, as always, CD Projekt Red is continually showing other developers how to do everything. I gotta say, with I like a team that's like a fifth the size. Has anybody downloaded it? Because I, I'm just, I'm, I'm so terrified of even taking a look at that. Not, not yet. I lost my CD Projekt login, so I'm trying to get that information. Uh, I actually was attempting to download it when I was like, oh yeah, this is out now. Um, but I, I'm excited to try it out. Cool. Cool. Um, Rift, as I mentioned earlier, is going to free to play on June 12th. You're going to get access to everything. And like everything else, you're going to have, you know, a, a subscription and uh, for, for bonus stuff or a, a pay shop and all that sort of thing. Um, it's got a really, really good progression system. I talked about that a little bit. Uh, so June 12th, you should try that out. There's actually, even before it goes free to play, you can play the first 20 levels for free. So go do that. Yes. Um, so, CD Projekt Red, uh, Tomas Gopp, the producer of The Witcher 2, left uh, after that project, and he is now with a company called CI Games, and they have a new title called Lords of the Fallen that's going to be at E3. Um, the, the gods have let down humankind, and uh, you are harking and you're fighting against all odds. That first piece of art is beautiful. Yeah, it's like it, the mountainous hand coming out. Yeah. Of 
You guys ever get excited when, like, you first see... Uh, this is going to sound really weird, but you guys get excited when you see, like, concept art for the first time and you think about how, like, incredible a game could be. And don't you yeah. get a little don't you get a little let down when your imagination just goes buck wild and it can never reach what your imagination initially thought up? Yes. I, 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 for me, the big one was, like, the first Bioshock Infinite trailer with Elizabeth and the roses and, like, just how bizarre it was and... I love that game, but like my mind went crazy because of how vague the first look at that game was. That you just think the sky's the limit, and turns out the limit's the sky. So it's like, ah. Uh... But that, hey, I'm excited to see what those guys build because that first piece of art, beautiful, love it. Weren't they saying it was supposed to be a little Dark Soulsy? I feel like they said that back when they first announced it. I can live with that. Maybe. I can look at that. Remember. Everything should be Dark Souls. That's actually what the name of the podcast now. All right. I have my last piece of news, <laughs> and it is my favorite piece of news. Phoenix Wright 5 coming to North America. Yay! It, it is going to be a download only, which no! is, is sad for many, but um, I don't care. I don't uh, either. I, yeah. I am all about more Phoenix Wright. Yeah, and they said that they, they really don't. Capcom doesn't predict that that's really going to make a dent in the way that it sells because they had to make a pretty limited production run for all the past games anyway. So really, this just makes it available to a wider audience. People don't have to go to the store and, uh, you know, it's not going to get rare because it's going to stay on the shop and people can be like, hey, you should play this Phoenix Wright game. And you don't have to go, OK, let me call all the game stops in town and see if anybody has a copy. So and I, I'm usually like totally pro physical, but I think I think digital is a totally good good route for phoenix right to go great avenue for uh, especially making you know D- cartridge based games i think that that's a great idea totally for it uh, are we getting the phoenix right movie i i i'm i want to see it the japanese I, yeah. I think it might be too late at this point we're getting kenshin it, but not phoenix right i didn't oh. like it you didn't I, like i it? watched it i did not like it oh they that... try they they like cram together several of the cases in the first game and i mean like i didn't expect it to be spot on but it's pretty freaking weird was it better than the super mario brothers movie okay isn't everything on the face of the earth better than that no i would say blood rain was worse okay blood rain <laughs> was really bad <laughs> i like just how michael madsen is just drunk the entire time in that movie i think that the highlight of the phoenix Wright movie though is there is polly the parrot is in the movie and it definitely <laughs> gives a testimony <laughs> love like it anime court Oh man! All right. All right, I have I have one last uh, thing to talk about, and uh, it's it's kind of an RPG. We're actually going to be talking to developers at some point. But uh, if you're a fan of of collectible card games, you need to go back hex on Kickstarter. Um, it's a new MMO TCG from Cryptozoic, who are the guys who make the World of Warcraft card game. Um. And they're actually a pretty big name in, in board games, but it is looking to be quite good. Yeah, that I, the idea of it... Go ahead and give us a quick summary, right. because I think that like it sounds really, really cool. So, imagine you take a game like Magic the Gathering, and you know what? The core game of Hex plays very similarly to Magic the Gathering. It's kind of funny. They just have like alternate names for all the keywords. It's um, <laughs> like black, it's gray. Well, no, no, no. It's... I think instead of first strike, it's quick strike. Instead uh, of tap, it's it's exhaust. Yeah. yeah. Um, but 
so you have this card game and it's got booster packs and all that kind of stuff that you would expect from a TCG. But then it has a whole bunch of RPG stuff. It has progression systems. It has persistent socketed cards. It has where the more that you use cards throughout your play, it upgrades them. It has raids. It has PVE content where you and your friends can go and play against your your computer almost like you take the World of Warcraft raid decks in that game. Imagine that. And <laughs> that that concept is really, really cool to me. And uh, we're trying to get an interview with uh, with the designers to talk about that that PVE content, that that real RPG stuff. So now I, I backed it because it sounded cool and I, I, I really didn't read it closely. I just heard the concept and thought it was great. Is there a computer-based part of this game, or is it all with actual cards? No, no, it's all computer-based. Okay. Yeah, that, that's, how, that's how I saw it. Is that, it like an that, iPad app or something like well, that? Or? Once they get to, I think, 1, 1. 1.5 million, they're going to make a, a tablet app, which they're well on course to blow that away. Um, it, it's all digital, and that's how they can do some of the things that they're doing. That's how they can make things persist. Which you sounds know, great. You know, you, when you play a game of Magic the Gathering, I... I like Magic Gathering, I like Star Wars the card game, I play all these little games but they're not persistent you play a game you're back, you have the same deck there's persistence with with hacks and I think that that's, that's important in creating an online game that people care about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really gives you a lot of different avenues for progression like we talked about today, not only can you get new cards but it sounds like if your cards are persistent and you can do all this other stuff, it's like there are so many different dynamics for you to change your experience. Yeah. Sounds awesome. Sounds, I, uh, sounds great to me. I'm stoked. And, and like I said, it's, it's from a known entity. It's not like it's, oh, some random guy, yeah, we're going to make this really cool card game. Or, hey. or, or a dude that's been, you know, kind of questionable in business practice. Sorry, I sorry, I don't want to get a suit. I, don't I knew get it. Sued. I knew it. Sorry. Nope. I, could be talking nope. about, I could be talking about any developer, right? Nope. We know exactly who you're talking yeah, about, Rob. Don't support idiocy, ladies and gentlemen. No, no, no. We're fine. Back to Hex. But, but <laughs> no, I mean, it's it's Cryptozoic. They're, they make games. I own a couple of Cryptozoic board games. Cool. Like, it's exciting. And I, it's out relatively soon because they've done a great majority of the development on it. Cool. I, hey, I'm, I'm yeah, interested September. in it now. Aren't you like a super backer in this, John? Yes, I am a king. I'm actually an early king, so I got I paid ninety dollars for Whoa. the twenty dollar package. I paid twenty. <laughs> I paid that, twenty, so I get a starter set. John makes his agenda clear. Uh, I'll, I'll look into it. So, all right. Uh, I love card games. Like, uh, yeah, uh, we got to play Netrunner at some point. We've, uh, God, I really don't know how to play a corporation in that game at all. I was just bewildered the first time I play, tried to play as a corporation. No, <laughs> I, have I mean, nobody to, I have nobody to play it with. E three. There you go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You guys will be having fun at E3. I guess our next show will probably be an E3 show, won't it? Mm, it's three weeks to E3 from... Okay, so yeah, we'll fit one more in. Maybe like a kind of... do one of our Yeah, do one of our prediction shows. I think... Aren't there going to be like a lot of mini conferences beforehand? I know Konami's going to do like a, a big one. The press conferences before. never have yeah. anything for us. Yeah, so... Okay. Maybe we'll see some... Maybe we'll do an episode before E3 just to talk a little bit. You know, I miss you guys. Uh, and you I don't have to may- go this year. Maybe. Uh, I know Derek is getting a copy of uh, Time and Eternity here in a little bit. Oh, he yeah. is? Yeah. He, he didn't know. Oh, it's because you said 
you would I know. play it, and I know. I, I'm holding you to that. Well, actually, <laughs> actually, Derek, though, you don't you don't get that until we need a third review for Dragon's Dogma. I didn't want to let you know, so I'm sending oh. you my copy. Yeah, no, that's okay. <laughs> okay, you know what? You send me that, and I'll send you a copy of Artanelico Three. <laughs> I'm right. gonna be playing. I'm gonna be playing Dust, the PC version. Yay! If if. Okay, so uh, I guess uh, this is the part of the show where we're going to move on into the interview section, so go ahead and give a listen to that. Uh, John, you were saying not too many spoilers, so you don't have to worry too much about uh, VLR yeah, it, stuff? Well, we, we, we talk about things that happen in the game in a general sense, so if you haven't beaten it, we don't go into the ending at all, but we we talk about the structure, which if you... If you've only played a little bit of it, uh, that is a bit of a spoiler. But yeah. we, and we do make a note to say, hey, there are spoilers coming up at this part. Yeah, so it, when you hear me warning you about spoilers, if you don't want to be spoiled by VLR, jump ahead maybe 10 minutes. All right. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to the regular part of the show. As always, subscribe to us on uh, iTunes through the RSS feed. We're at 41 reviews. I'd like to hit 50 by the end of the year. I think that's a reasonable yes. goal. I think that's a reasonable goal. I think we'll hit there. So uh, thanks again, guys. And for everybody on the podcast, thank you very much. And look forward to that interview coming up now. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Random Encounter, the RPG fan podcast. Your host, Robert Steinman, is not here because he did not play and finish a VLR yet. Uh, this is the editor-in-chief, John McCarroll. Uh, I'm here with uh, two of my fellow editors, um, one who is the host of Rhythm Encounter, the RPG fan music podcast. Uh, Steven Myrick, Talos on the Boards. And then I also have uh, another person who is often on Rhythm Encounter. Often? Like every episode? That is often, is it not? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty often. <laughs> that, yeah, that, that is true. I'm Derek Heemsrigan. I'm Embryon on our boards. Um, and we have with us actually two very special guests from Axis Games, um, both editors. If you guys want to go ahead and introduce yourselves. Uh, hi, I am Ben Bateman. I am an editor. And I'm Karen McCasper. I'm an assistant editor. All right, perfect. So <laughs> we're... It does. No. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Axis's past, present, and future in visual novels, and uh, kind of how how they get things done, and maybe, uh, you know, get a little bit of insight. So, uh, first off, why don't you give us a little bit of background of what you've worked on in the past, what you're working on now, and, and kind of how you're looking towards the future. Um, well, uh, I have worked on a lot, a lot of things. <laughs> um the majority of the Axis catalog for the last five years was me or partially me. Um, that includes highlights such as 999, uh, VLR, Levitine, because the poster is right in front of me. Uh, I also worked on um, the first two Blaze Blue games, um, some other things. Hakuoki. Hakuoki. Uh, I also recently finished Sweet Fuse. Which is a PSP Atomi game. Gladiator. Uh, Gladiator. Yeah, lots, lots of stuff. Um, we're looking around the office. Yeah, we're sitting in the room that has all of the posters, so we're just looking at the posters and reading off the names. All the things. Stuff. But yeah, a lot of stuff. Um, I can say Hakuoki 3DS and 
a little bit of heat dues. Yes, that's yeah, that's right. You actually you did one of the one, files. Yes. Um, so but I did... I read all of his stuff. Yeah. I was a proofreader, so I've read every single thing in the past three, three years. years yeah. She was a tester, and then she was a proofreader. So she's been reading stuff I have written for the last several years. I know how he writes now. <laughs> and Probably every better. Typo, every typo, I, I can tell. If I see a word, I'll know he will misspell it because he's very consistent that way. Yeah. <laughs> so what what are some words that Ben often misspells? Pleasant, ironically. <laughs> <laughs> um, always... Always a different letter there. You're either an E or an A, and I don't know why, but every time, always that word. You like that word, too. It's a good word. I used to misspell destroyed all the time as destroyed. 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 Uh, I figured that one out and fixed it. But yeah, I have a tendency to misspell the same words over and over and over. Weird. Hey, consistency is important. Yeah, yeah, yeah Stephen does that too. Stephen will like when Stephen gets excited when he's typing about something, you'll get like the first two or three letters of words capitalized like all the time. He'll be like, "Oh my gosh, so, so excited!" Yeah, I have. I can't count the number of times I have written "blaze blue" and capitalized the second B and the L. Yeah, that's yes. That's exactly what I'm talking about. But good yeah, for yep. you, consistency. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm actually gonna let uh, I'm gonna let Derek go to town on Hakuoki questions since he's the only one here who's uh, who's defeated it. Uh, I haven't the only one of you two have known happiness. Yeah, I've I've played it, but I haven't defeated it. Oh, um, but yeah, I actually I have questions for a couple couple games today, but I'll start with Hakuoki. Sure. Um, so while we could easily just look this up on an Amazon product listing, we're lazy people, and I would like it if you could give us a little. Uh, uh, for the uninitiated listeners here, if you could tell us just the main differences between uh, Hakuoki Demon of the Fleeting Blossom and Hakuoki Memories Edition Sengumi, which is the new 3DS version. All right, I get to take that question. Yay! All right. Demon of the Fleeting Blossom is the PSP game that is an Otome visual novel, and Ben did all the text for that. And the 3DS game has all of that text from the first game, on the PSP, plus six additional short stories and a photo booth where you can actually take pictures with your 3DS. And the graphics in-game are a little bit 3D. Yes, there's a little bit of a 3D effect. So my hunks will pop out at me a little bit more? Yes. Yes. Okay, that's an important difference. A little bit closer to the menu of... <laughs> that's Almost like that's all I can really ask for. How am I going to play Sweet Fuse then and go back to the those 2D lovers then? I know. <laughs> it's going to be a trial. Yeah, you think I'm kidding. <laughs> no, he, he's dead serious. Yeah. But anyway, uh, so so good. So all those features sound like it's going to make it more fun. And that's definitely going to give me a reason to play through it and actually finish this time. So yes. good to hear that as well. Um, I yes. also wanted to ask, um, in February, you guys released Hakuoki Warriors of the Shinsengumi for PSP. That was the sort of action-y brawler fighter game that's linked to the Hakuoki series. Is that connected to the visual novels? And can you tell us how? Like, does that does that give you some extra backstory that wasn't there before? Or does it take place at a different time? Um, it, mostly what it does 
Reader's, Reader's Digest version? It's, it's half, like, Reader's Digest version and half, uh, like, what if. Yeah. Like, there are a number of things in it where it's, like, you know, in actual history and in... Because, like, I don't know if this is a spoiler because it's based on historical events. But, like, uh, spoiler alert, the Shinsengumi do not do super well. After oh, points. <laughs> um, no, they don't have a great history. Yeah, and there are a number of parts in uh, Warriors where it's basically like, well, what if they didn't totally screw the pooch on this one and this happened instead? And it's those and then a bunch of things where you fight other famous figures from that time that don't appear in the story. Okay. Uh, so it's partially like, here's this fight that happened in the original game that we just talked about, but now you get to go do it. And then some of them are also these, like, what if such and so happened type of thing. Oh, that's cool. So it's definitely a, a good supplement, something that would enrich the experience if you already enjoyed the visual novel, right? Yeah, it sort of expands on the character and the story and the world. Yeah, so, plus yeah. it's, I bet it's interesting yeah. To, yeah. Uh, to play through it, you know, like to, to woo the guy and then to be like, ooh, I could actually play as him. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And uh, the final question I had to ask about Hakuoki was just, uh, I'm sure you can predict this question from a million miles away, but who's your favorite guy? Uh, Okita, by a mile. We, we fight over Okita a lot. Okay. Ken's not as fond of Okita. <laughs> <laughs> I love Okita. What are you talking about? I love writing for Okita. He, he was fun. Okita I like him. Okita and um, Heisuke is pretty fun, too. is all right. I just... Well, Saito's I don't wanna... Moe. Saito is super Moe. <laughs> but yeah, definitely okay. Okay is the best. Cool, cool, cool. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, Karen, you said that you've read a lot of Ben's work previous to this. Has has that helped you at all when you have gone into uh, uh, editing or uh, kind of? editing the translation of this new content, how, how has it been for you to match his style? Well, <laughs> that's a very good question. I would say yes, with a question mark, because I've seen enough of his writing that if there's something that I don't understand, I can usually interpret just because I know what he intends, his thought process. So he has very defined characters and it actually was very helpful for me to go back to the old text and just look at it and read it to help establish the same feeling for the characters in the 3DS version. So it was helpful. It's just sometimes a little hard because my vocabulary is not exactly the same as his. <laughs> Which does not necessarily mean my vocabulary is better, just that it's different. <laughs> it's a learning experience for both sides. <laughs> yeah, it's, I have to I have to look at the line and go, how would Ben write <laughs> And then try to figure out if I could actually write that and then and then go from there. So hopefully people won't see very much that it's different. So that's fingers crossed. All right. Yeah, well, so so far in the stuff that I've read, you know, based on the games that you've worked on, I uh, I haven't seen any, like, dissonance in the way that things are written. So you're doing a good job. Keep it up. Awesome. So in, uh, in well, let's wrap up Hakuoki in one sentence. Why should 
the listeners to the podcast pick up the 3DS Hakuoki? What do we want to say? Because because <laughs> oh, 3D hunks. We already we already established this. Or be honest. <laughs> well, like if you don't have if you don't have a PSP, it's a great opportunity to play this game. And lots of people don't have PSPs, and lots of people have 3DSs. And there's more content in yeah. the 3DS version than there is in the PSP version. Yeah, and I'm not kidding about that photo booth being super awesome. Like, I realize that sounds kind of silly, uh, but then I played with it, and it's way too much fun. <laughs> I'll be posting mine on Twitter. Look, look for it. Don't worry. So you I'm sit down, and then two hours have passed. <laughs> Pretty Can much. you add like sparkles and stuff? Like, oh yeah, uh, you can add, like, flowers. Yeah, you can add like ten different types of sparkly things. Oh my god, I'm so. You can add. Yeah, the amount of content in this thing is kind of frightening. Okay, like, but the, the burning of... question is: is there a uh, is there a Hakuoki uh, printer station at Blockbuster where I can go get my pictures turned into stickers, <laughs> like Pokemon <laughs> Snap? We're working on that. Okay, I'll be I'll be looking. Yeah, it, they'll save to the uh, the SD card, and then you can just export them to your computer and do what you will with them. Okay, I'll fine. Put it, put it on my business You and card. your modern tech. Yeah, it's easy to get them off of the 3DS. I was messing around with it the other day to make sure, and it's pretty straightforward. All right. Excellent. So let's, uh, let's move on to VLR, which uh, is one of my favorite games of last year. And... Uh, my my most burning question is Ben, why do you spell Dino D O N N O and not D U N N O? Because there is no U in don't or no. <laughs> times, many times. Yes, believe me, we've discussed this. I'm like, why? I made the executive decision to leave it as an O. Hey, but we started changing it recently. Yes, so we have started changing I, I it, forced but them to change it. it was important to unify it for that particular game. So. I love that you had an answer ready and willing to go for that. Like you were like, no, this is how it goes. <laughs> We've talked about this. That, yeah. Actually, the, this is this yeah. is a question that I've asked Ben before. So, okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, kind of talk about uh, just just your experience with VLR. It, it's got a very unique style, and I can't imagine that that much of that was in the original text, like things like the, the main character, Sigma's uh, cat fetish or whatever you want to call it. You know, uh, kind of how how did you put your spin on this game? Because I can't imagine that just a straight translation would have worked. Well, um, like a lot of it is that, uh, man, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of reasons. Like for mostly what I try and do is, uh, like, for instance, with Sigma's cat thing, like, like most things in that game, that's based on something from the, from the JTEX. Like, in Japanese, uh, he does this thing where he just ends every sentence with nyan, which is the Japanese word for cats. Okay. And, uh, like, that's a fairly common sort of thing to do if you're familiar with, like, anime and manga and J games, is that you can like add like a word that's like the sound something makes or even just what it is to the end of lines and it sort of makes them sound like that. It adds that sort of idiosyncrasy yeah. to it. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't really, like in English that just sounds weird. Like a literal translation of that would be to have him end every, every one of his sentences with cat or meow. <laughs> yeah, but that sounds really strange. <laughs> 
Um, and so I was trying to think of a way to reflect his, this sort of bizarre vocal tick that relates to cats. And I decided the best way to do that would be puns, which is the same reason that Zero the Third makes rabbit puns all the time. <laughs> is he does the same thing. He ends his sentences with Usa, which is like a shortened version, excuse me, of the word for, yeah, rabbit. Usagi, um, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that was where that came from. I mean, most of those things are, like, I, I look at what's going on in the Japanese if it's something that is kind of untranslatable like that. And I try and look at what it's intended to communicate and how you could do that in English. Like, um, even though Sigma and Zero ended up, like, basically those ended up in the same place, which is animal puns, um, I arrived there in sort of a different way. Like, for Zero, it was very much... The reason that, in my mind, the reason that he does that, that he adds the Usa thing, is because he's... Part of it is he's trying to look cute, which he literally says in the game. But part of it is also that he's trying to be kind of a dick. Like, he's making fun of these people, and he's sort of talking down to them, almost like a, almost like he's some sort of, uh, you know, like children's television show host. And mm. so I was trying to think of a way that he could still communicate those same things. The idea that he's sort of trying to be cute or give himself a character. The idea that he's sort of mocking these people. You know, like, if an actual person insisted on using puns in, like, every other sentence when they talk to you, that would be incredibly frustrating um, for you. We've experienced that. Yeah, we have. <laughs> I do that to Karen all the time. Um, but cool. that was the idea with him. And with Sigma, it wasn't quite as involved. It was basically just, like, how can I insert something cat-like into his sentences that is more interesting than just inserting meow every so often? Uh, but like, that's usually what I'm trying to go for with those. Like for me, a lot of that stuff is about it, it. To me, the idea is more sort of an adaptation and less of like a translation. You're trying to capture the idea of what's going on, not necessarily the exact details. But still make it sound natural. Like the word level won't translate. Sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, that no, that's fine. I was just wondering if you're asking a question or something. Um, but, yeah, like, that's kind of what's going on there. And then I think kind of as a result of that, because I am rewriting it at a heavy level, that it, then it starts to sound a little bit more like me or something like that. Like, because I'm rewriting a bunch of it, more of me ends up in there. But part of the thing with VLR um, is just that it's uh, – what Uchikoshi wrote is very um, – trying to think of the right word you know it's very consistent and the things that happen in it aren't just thrown in there like for a one-off joke or something like everything ties into everything else and so when you think about what these things when you when you what i'm trying to sort of abstract ideas to figure out how to localize them um they end up sitting because the the ideas he's put in there make sense and so even when you abstract them, they still fit in with other things, like if that makes any sense. Basically, it's, because it's well-written to begin with, um, even when you start to heavily localize things and change certain things, it still works. Like, you'll change something, and then you find something else later that plugs into that, and you're like, oh, this still works, or, oh, now it's really easy for me to see the path 
to change this other thing so that they'll work and it'll still work with the rest of the game. Um, so it's just, it's a combination of it being really well written and being really well sort of planned out. All right, cool. So <clears throat> I have to warn our listeners at this point, we might get into some spoilery territory with VLR. So if you haven't, uh, if you haven't played VLR and you don't want to kind of spoil some of the mechanics of how the story works, this, yeah, this might be a time to fast forward, maybe 10 minutes or so. Um, and for everyone else, I'm glad that you're still here. So, so in, in VLR, kind of the way things branch out, obviously you have, you know, with you going through multiple paths, you have things that are happening at the same time in different timelines. Is it difficult to kind of keep the tone of the individual characters when perhaps, you know, you've edited a piece of content where, uh, someone dies and then there's maybe a reference to that character that you edit later. How, how is it keeping that straight for, okay, I'm at this point in the game. Here's what's going on for this particular path. Um, well, for the most part, it wasn't too hard. Um, for a couple reasons, like for one, the characters are very consistent, so um, they don't they don't change a ton based on like which path you're in, if that makes sense. Like they change as the plot demands them to, and as their their characters sort of grow. But it's because they're sort of well written and fleshed out. It's easier to figure out how they're going to talk and how they're going to behave. Um. But also just sort of the way it was laid, for one, the way it was laid out in the script files that we had, it was pretty easy to basically work through an entire path and then move over and work through another entire path. You weren't jumping between them and having to figure out which one you were in, but we also had, you know, copies of the game and we had... Lots of notes. Yeah, lots of notes and a thing that was laid out that basically said, you know, X-File is at Y point in the game and it's preceded by, you know, Z, W, and T files. So we can know what happened to get there. And uh, the more we worked on it, the more we just sort of remembered, you know, what's happened in this path. And, you know, we knew to ask the right questions, you know, like, well, in this path, you know, did has Alice stabbed herself yet? You know, has She's pretty good why, at that. Did this happen in what way? You know, like, it's... Uh, did they find a dead body? Did they not find a dead yeah, body? Yeah, because also some of the big things that happen, like finding dead bodies, like, you know, even if it's the same person who's dead, they might have died in a different way. Um, so keeping those things straight was most of the time not too hard. Uh... I can't think. I don't I think, think we they caught were... a couple continuity issues, even. Oh, you mean that were in there originally? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because we stared at that text. Yeah, we yeah more. we paid very close attention to what was going on. <laughs> so for the most part, that wasn't too hard. It was just an issue of sort of, you know, being careful and making sure if you were even close to doubting something that you asked and made sure what it was. Yeah, that's 
well, I'm I'm really impressed personally just because translating a, a, a visual novel in the first place is a huge task because it's all text. It's not like I mean, you know, RPGs are super text heavy, but visual novels visual novels are like a step above. And then for one to have like a billion branching paths and possibilities, I I can't say that I envy you, but I'm really really uh, I'm glad that you guys did it, and you should definitely be proud of your work on it because it was awesome. Thanks. I'm glad you I'll be it. here to stroke your ego all day. Don't worry about it. <laughs> oh, you, you know what's you know what's funny is Derek and and Stephen kind of put out some questions beforehand, and I didn't realize that that was one of Derek's questions. Whoops. Oh. <laughs> well, see, so it's like I asked it anyway. Yeah. So if you guys want to go ahead with your VLR stuff, Stephen, Stephen you go first. Derek, have at it. Sure. Um. So I guess one of my questions, I'm not sure if you can answer it, but sort of, obviously VLR is the second part of what is going to be, you know, a trilogy at least. But did you sort of have any directives in place? Like did Uchikochi say when you were translating, like, oh, you have to keep this scene exactly this way because it's going to be important later in the third game. Like, did you sort of have any rules for this has to stay consistent with, you know, something else to be consistent with the next game? Um, not... I'm not sure. I don't, not really in that sense. Like, I don't recall him giving us sort of heavy directives. Mm-hmm. Um, he did explain stuff. Yeah, there, he did, like, in the most, continuity yeah, most of what would happen story. is we would ask him about something. Um, like, something in VLR. And uh, it would be like, oh, well, this is going to be important in the next game in this way. And okay. so we were like, oh, well, we'll take that into account. But there wasn't a lot of like, um, you know, this thing needs to be exactly like this because of this. Um, and I think part of that is just because that's the way he writes. Um, like, he, I get the impression that he, the way he writes is very compartmentalized. Mm-hmm. Um, so once he goes to start working on the next one, it's not going to be that much of an issue if some things were changed in this one. And most of the big plot things we aren't going to change. Okay. Actually, helped to clarify one that one. Yeah, that one that's point, true. Yeah, that's true. So hey, I helped set something up in the third <laughs> game because I had a question. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. And I'd be like, yes. <laughs> that's cool. I so yeah. Yeah. So, so there is, there was like, it wasn't like he came in and said, this has to be this way. But when you guys were transiting, you did kind of have like an, like a, a back and forth with him for certain, certain like questions and scenes. Yeah. Oh, a lot. (laughs) Like, um, we, uh, like one of the things that was really great about working on VLR and working on 999 is that he's, uh, Uchikoshi is super receptive to like us asking him questions and very responsive and also loquacious. Yes. Is that the right word? Yeah. Um, <laughs> verbose is probably verbose. a better choice. Um, I like but loquacious. Yeah, we would. Yeah. Sorry. What's up? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just said I like loquacious. <laughs> loquacious. <laughs> it's a good word. Um, but yeah, we ask him a lot of questions about a lot of stuff. Uh, like, I ask a lot of questions as part of editing stuff because I don't understand Japanese. Um, I can't read it or anything. So I always want to be really sure about everything. 
And uh, fortunately, we were able, we basically were able to talk directly to him. And so we could get clarification on sort of intricate plot details. And that allowed us to look at stuff basically on a whole other level. Um, so we could address it on a much deeper level instead of the sort of superficial level that you have to work on when you don't, when you don't know what the writer was thinking when he wrote it. That's very interesting. That's really cool. Yeah, so, it was. I really like working with him. <laughs> so did you have to do a lot of background research when you were translating, like into like the sort of like the pseudoscience and stuff? Because there's a lot of it in there and like game theory and all that. Did you did you have to like sit and read and be like, all right, I understand this. Now I can write this or. Um, definitely some. Uh, not not game theory so much because most of the game theory stuff they have in there is pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were other a lot of other concepts that they dealt with that I did that I looked up on Wikipedia <laughs> and read up on and then discussed with Uchikoshi. Uh, so yeah, I, there was definitely a lot of, there are a lot of things in there that I read up on a bunch. Um, cause it's even 999. Yeah. Same thing with 999. A lot of research, at least reading terms. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's very dense. Okay, cool. So yeah. I, I only have one more question about VLR. Um, are there any sort of like ticks or nuances from the original Japanese that you guys like weren't able to keep when you ship when you when you localized it? Like just sort of uh, you know something that there was just no way to keep um, when you, when you translated it. Um, you probably have to talk to someone who can actually read Japanese. <laughs> um, I know that there are a couple jokes that did not transfer as well. Um, and a lot of them were ones that were more complicated and kind of relevant to the plot. Like the joke at the very beginning that Phi makes about how she is no man, um, is in, in Japanese, that joke is way, way, way better. But the problem is that it, word puns. The, yeah, Japanese it's, word it's puns. a bunch of word puns that work because of the way Japanese constructs words and there was no way to make it work at all in English. Uh, so I had to go with that other joke, which is not as good. And there are a couple Sorry, things. Sorry, that was my suggestion. <laughs> no, I, no, it's a fine, like, I'm not trying to was, blame you. I'm just I saying. I was the like, only one that came up with that an was, idea. <laughs> there, on, on both VLR and 999, a lot of times where there were jokes that I couldn't figure out, uh, I would leave them blank and then come back to them later. And on both games, there were a couple jokes that I came back to and fixed like two days before it was due. <laughs> that was one of them. Like it was because that one had a lot of elements and then she refers to it again later. So whatever the punchline to her joke is has to be relevant in these other situations. Um but by and large, uh, there wasn't a lot of stuff like that. I'm sure that if you were, you know, if you're a native speaker and you read through it, you'd be like, oh, well, this thing is in there and it's missing here. Um, but I think by and large, we got most of the stuff. Um, the characters, I think, you know, feel more or less the way they're supposed to. So, yeah, I think we got just about everything. 
All right. Well, excellent. I know that I'm excited for the next weird time travel. Are we in the future? Are we in the past? Um, crazy <laughs> stuff going on game. So uh, that's cool. So um, we want to talk a little bit about Sweet Fuse, which I have to admit uh, is a game that I know absolutely nothing about. Uh, so if you could give us kind of the cliff's notes of what this game is, that would be great. Yeah, it's a uh, atomic game for the PSP. Uh, you play as a girl named Saki Inafune, who is the niece of legendary game developer uh, Keiji Inafune. Um, and basically the premise fictional. is... Yeah. Fictional niece. Yes, fictional niece. As far as we know, she does not actually exist. Fictional. Um, but you get trapped in this theme park when this uh, evil pig guy takes over it for unclear reasons. Uh, I mean, they become clear later, but it's unclear to begin with. Uh, and you're trapped in there with a bunch of hot dudes, and you have to figure out what the mystery is and uh, play a bunch of these weird, possibly deadly games in order to ultimately escape. And, uh, of course, you find romance. Or at least you can during that process. So that's basically the short version of what Sweet Fuse is. So it's it's VLR with hot guys. Sort of. Sign me up. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> uh, so I, I'll let you guys go to town since you've got all the questions for this. Yeah, I have I have just a few. They're they're pretty standard. Um, this isn't really related to the content of the game, but I just figured I'd ask. Um, Amazon is listing the game coming with a pre-order bonus. Do you have any info you can share about that? I don't believe I'm at liberty to discuss that. Okay. That's fine. I just thought <laughs> I'd ask. Hopefully it's hopefully it's a handkerchief again. Hey, he, here, I'm, I'm going to insert my... Axis just announced that for, for the first time that they're going to have an actual setup at E3, so I don't have to meet them like at the back of South Hall by the nacho stand. Um, is... You don't like the secret, the secret meetups, yeah, the, the college the, and the, everything. They're they're fine, but you know, I it's nice to not be distracted by the nachos. Yeah, uh, is that something that you might be displaying at E3? Uh, we just sent out a press release that I think might discuss that. Uh, but I'm not being evasive. I actually just don't remember. Uh, that's fine. It's okay. You're allowed to be evasive. We understand how <laughs> things work. Um, no, I honestly just don't remember. Um, I do, I, but no. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, if, uh, if you want to check it out, you should just, uh, shoot Russell an email and he might be able to hook you up. Well, we'll see you either way. Even even if yeah. I don't come to interview you guys, I'll be at your booth, so I'll be cool. poking around. So um, besides that, uh, this is my specific question: Who's the hunky guy in the green turtleneck? <laughs> uh, that is Shirabe, right? Shirabe, yes. yes. Is, is that like a, a pun on Shiraberu? Shiraberu. Tall trench coat. Yeah. He's a, okay. He's yeah, he's the handsomest. So uh, can. I, what I what I actually wanted to ask was, um, are you able to give us like a really brief rundown of of each guy so I can start fawning appropriately? Um, <laughs> uh, no, I don't remember all the names. I'm okay. just, you don't think that would be too spoilery? Well, uh, yeah, I don't I don't want any kind of spoilers. I just I didn't know if it was like 
Okay. So and so, so and so is tall and handsome and comes from the mystery detective agency. So and so is short and handsome and comes from. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's see if I can remember them all. Um, Sharabe, the guy you just mentioned, is a uh, hard-boiled reporter. Um, Shido, who is one of my favorites, he's is a Phoenix Wright-looking dude. Sort of Phoenix Wrighty. Yeah, he's the guy with the sunglasses. sunglasses. He's a uh, he's a police officer. Um, Midorashi, who is the big dude in the pink coat. His coat is pink, right? His hair is pink, I think. His hair, it, there's some sort of pink red He's thing going on with him. Coat um, he is a, uh, well, he's an escort in our version of the game. Um, <laughs> oh. He's, uh, <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, let's see. Uh, Wakasa is, um, the pop. Uh, the, he's a pop star. He's the one who kind of looks like a girl. He's got the yellow coat and a bang. Yeah, um, for for the listeners, you might want to just pull up the Sweet Fuse website because that's what I'm looking at right now. There's just like a banner <laughs> pic. I, uh, I, I'll be honest, I thought that was the main character of the game. <laughs> because I, I assumed that that was the woman, but I, I'm apparently wrong. It's a Japanese that's game. Um, you should have learned your lesson, John. <laughs> no. Miyoshi is the guy who kind of looks like he's wearing a straight jacket. Yeah. He is a video game nerd. Um, recluse. Yeah, he's a recluse. He's a hikimori if you go by Japanese turn. Uh, sure. I think that's everybody. I think that's everybody. Yeah. Is that everybody? I think that's that should everybody. be everyone. Cool. So those are the those are the short Reader's Digest versions of who yeah. they are. Yeah. Awesome. I just. I thought it'd be cool to get just a little a little sneak peek at him. So I'll be going after trench coat guy, turtleneck guy. I mean, the one whose name I've already forgotten. Shirabe, right? <laughs> Your relationship is off to a great start. Yeah. It is. <laughs> See, you thought you were going to get on the show and we'd be like, what's an Otome? What? <laughs> so, for, uh, for those of you, re- for, for the listeners who are going, what is an Otome? It's a, it's a visual novel where you play as a female character and it has heavy dating elements. Hakuoki is one of them. Yes. Yep. And you already answered my third question, which is, who's your favorite guy? So. I wouldn't say Shio is my favorite guy, but I like him a lot. It's really it's a toss up between Shido and Mitarashi. Yeah, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. It's. I imagine <laughs> it's got to be really fun to write. <laughs> to translate them and stuff. But there's no. But there's no photo booth for Sweet Fuse. So come on. When are you going to get a? When are you going to magically develop a 3ds version? Because you're totally a developer, right? Yes. We will get right to work on that. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. The power of, of a request goes far. Now that that's all. Those are all my questions for Sweet Fuse. So thank you guys. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. So uh, do you guys have have any spare info that you'd like to add, or things that that you particularly found interesting about any of the games that we discussed today? What about you, Karen? Anything, to... Anything particularly interesting to say? I'm not an interesting person. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's we... fine. We like you anyway. Oh, yeah, I was going to say we we do have uh, we have Muramasa to look forward to, right? Yep. Yes, we do. Although the involvement of either of us in that is I minimal. read it. Yeah, I looked it, it over. <laughs> the, that was uh, Angler, our other editor. Well, luckily, uh, Hakuoki is one of the games that you guys will have at your E3 booth, which we will be there to uh, talk to you about. Cool. So, 
Ben, Karen, I, I really appreciate you guys taking the time to chat with us, uh, as do our listeners, I'm sure. Um, yes, thank you very much. We're excited you, to see Hakuoki for 3DS this summer. Or is it spring? Uh, we have not officially okay. said. Yeah. All right. In the future. Yes, in, in the future. So I, I'm assuming <laughs> this year we will see both Sweet Fuse and Hakuoki. So um, thank you guys again. And uh, this will probably be at the end of our podcast. So you've already heard Rob sign off. Um, for, for Derek and Steven and for Ben and Karen, uh, this is John McCarroll. Have a great day. <laughs>